This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, along with Jason Kelly, live from the Charles Schwab Impact Conference. It's the industry's largest gathering of independent financial advisors. I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in. Our next guest job, no doubt, has been made tricky thanks to a low rate and even negative rate environment. And reading the tea leaves of the U.S. Central Bank, having said that, 2019 has been a good one for fixed income investors. Here to talk strategy and the bond investor's dilemma, Kathy Jones, Senior Vice President and Chief Fixed Income Strategist at Schwab Center for Financial Research, on site with us at the Schwab Impact Conference in San Diego. Nice to be here with you. Oh, thanks for having me, Carol. I feel like we've had so many conversations about the fixed income (laughs) environment, and rightfully so. Tell us how you see it. Well, as you mentioned, it, it's been a great year, yeah. and uh, I, I like to liken it to um, a kid's soccer game where everybody gets a participation award. <laughs> you know, if you showed up and bought a bond, you made some money this year. I like that. Uh, but the dilemma is, of course, now that prices are up and yields are down, it's going to be harder to replicate those returns in the future. And uh, we're navigating a, an ever-changing central bank story. You know, we've gone from... Um, raising rates last year to going on pause to lowering them. Now we're on pause again. Right. Um, there's a lot of complicated stuff going on, and it's going to be tough to get uh, good returns without taking a fair amount of risk. But you have to commit money, or you have to commit make, commit to a strategy. So what strategy do you commit to? So our strategy is threefold. One is uh, on the duration um, aspect. We, we like barbells. So I have some short and then some intermediate and longer term bonds. Because if you stay all short, which people are tempted to do, if the Fed continues to lower rates, you're just locking in lower and lower yields, yeah. which is not what people want from fixed income. So you need to lock in something. Um, we The second thing is to stay up in credit quality. So we've seen a very long cycle with a big buildup in debt, particularly on corporate balance sheets. We want to be really careful about investing in the corporate bond market, particularly in the high yield market, making sure our exposure is to companies that can service the debt as it grows higher and higher, and even if profits continue to slow down or go flat. Um, and the third thing is to is to sort of manage your expectations, right? You know, you, you can't get double-digit returns in fixed income every year, so you have to find that balance between how much risk you're willing to take for the income you're trying to earn. And one of the things we're always interested in is trying to understand how institutional investors are thinking versus retail investors. I know you've worked very closely with both, and certainly that's something on the mind of the legions of people uh, who are here as well. How do you delineate that in in this market? What should everyday investors be thinking about uh, versus maybe what a big institution is? Well, a big institution probably has more levers they can pull in terms of you know tactical sure. plays and in, in their portfolio, right? Um, and they'll have the expertise and all the credit research, and they'll have people who can and work on those things. Um, if you're an individual investor, particularly if you're buying individual bonds and you're not relying on a manager, then you know you're just not going to have the same amount of options. So what you need to do is you know control what you can control. So look at the risk you're willing to take. Uh, try to keep your taxes down. Your tax it can be a big right. chunk of what you pay. And keep That's your costs point. down, and then find that sweet spot where you know 
how much risk are you willing to take? What do you do for like an older community, right? And I think about that. We've talked so much about, you know, pensions uh, and how do they find, you know, stable yield in this environment. What's your advice? It's really tough. Um, We have a lot of uh, clients who are in retirement or approaching retirement. And, um, you know, it's a real challenge with with risk-free rates or low-risk rates being where they are. They can't generate the kind of income they used to in the old days when you maybe could get a treasury paying 4 or 5%. Right. Now it's 1 or 2%. And uh, so you have to take some risk on top of that. And we like to kind of blend a portfolio, maybe some dividend paying stocks, some corporate bonds, but some high quality treasuries and municipal bonds and, and provide that mix um, where you can get a little bit more income, but not go way out the spectrum and be an all high yield or something like that. What high quality treasuries? <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, well, we like actually a barbell of, of short and intermediate terms. So. But not long term, like at this point, right? Why? Yeah, for most people, that is not going to make sense. Um, a bond ladder maybe that extends out a little bit further, but we probably wouldn't go beyond 10 years. Does the election factor into any of your thinking at this point? Just got about 30 seconds. Not yet. It's not too yet. early to know where we're going with that, so we can't really base a strategy on an unknown outcome. Right. Well, and we've all had, all had such fun looking at the Fed, it feels like, in the last <laughs> year as well. Are you a little more comfortable where the, where they're headed at this point? Yeah. Clear signals? Yeah. I think, uh, you know, obviously in, in their view, we're in a good place, yeah. as they like to say, and they'd like to sit and wait it out. And the economy domestically is doing pretty well. Right. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, I'm actually fairly optimistic that we get a little bit better economic growth going forward, and the Fed can stay on hold for a while. All right. Great stuff. Kathy Jones, thank you for having us at your show. Senior Vice President, Chief Fixed Income Strategist at the Schwab Center for Financial Research. What everybody's saying. All right. So clearly one of the most watched IPOs this year has been that of Peloton. And yet there seems to be a little bit of a misunderstanding, it feels like, in mm-hmm. terms of the public markets. Earnings out today, the stock down about 7.5%, uh, not as low as it was a little bit earlier. So let's put some questions to the man himself, John Foley, the CEO of Peloton, back in our New York studio. John, I'm sorry we're not there with you. It feels sort of weird that you know, you're know you in our house and we don't even bother to show up. But we appreciate <laughs> you coming in. Nice to talk to you. It's nice to talk to you. It's always great to be on your show, Jason and Carol. All right. So... Help us understand what you saw today. You know, you put the numbers out. What were the highlights for you? And, and what's, the, what's the miscommunication or, or the misunderstanding that you're seeing? Well, I think you're talking in generic terms what the confusion is. But let me say something specific, that there's some real confusion around how we did. A couple of articles I've read in the last hour said that we missed our earnings. And, and that's not true at all. So there's some, uh, some confusion from the journalist side. Um, And I think it revolves around a a, a misquoted share count uh, on an EPS basis. But let me tell you that the consensus expectations on the bottom line was that we were going to lose $83 million, and we uh, only lost $21 million. So we dramatically beat on the bottom line, as we did on the top line. I think the consensus was $198 million revenue on the top line, and we did uh, $228 million, so a 16% beat. So uh, really nice beat on the top line, really nice uh, beat on the bottom line. Um, interestingly, the, the soundbite, Jason, I'll give you is that it was, again, triple-digit growth uh, on the top line, so 103%, and only single-digit EBITDA uh, losses. So um, I think it was a great quarter, and we're, we're very excited about it. 
Well, John, and I do wonder, you know, it's funny, when, when Jason and I have had a lot of conversations with folks that run publicly held companies, you know, they say we really focus on investors, not necessarily the analyst community, not necessarily on the media, but we're more concerned with our investor base. And, and I do wonder about what's the story that you talk about with them, because, you know, there was a story that our Mark Gurman had on uh, about how you guys have recently bought a de design firm that kind of helped out Facebook and Google. And I think, you know, you are uh, an exercise company, but you're a lot more. Help us understand what the longer-term vision is. Yeah, uh, interestingly, I don't want to be dismissive of the investors, but I, I did hear Jack Ma speak a couple years ago, and he talked about his first constituent is his employees, and his second constituent mm. is his uh, is customers, and a distant third is is investors. And, and I would say we're not that different from that. We we care deeply about our team. We're trying to create the best place to work in the world, and we care deeply about our members. Um, and we are delighting our members. We now have 1.6 million members across the globe. We're going to Germany in the next um, 30 days. But to your question, Carol, uh, that particular M&A was, a, uh, back to people, was, was um, focused around an acquihire of some fantastic uh, hardware and software engineers um, out of the valley that we've worked with in the past, and they're just world class. So um, we will look to do acquihires where it makes sense. We also announced that we uh, bought um, a strategic uh, manufacturing partner in Taiwan that I think will uh, pay dividends and, and, and bear fruit in the coming years as we scale our supply chain, as we get uh, more familiar with our upstream supply chain, and as we have over time structural cost advantage um, you know, as we as we try to win what we believe could be a global winner-take-all platform technology platform opportunity. John, how frustrated are you? Because I do think we're in an interesting environment where all of a sudden, all you know, companies that are either going, you know, public are caught in this. All right, folks. Yeah, I'm happy that you're growing, but we're we're increasingly caring much more about the profitability picture. And I know you clarified at the top what's going on, but you know, I feel feel like everybody's kind of getting grouped together. Um, are you a little frustrated? Yeah, I think that's that's fair, Carol. You're, you're absolutely right that it does feel like there's some clustering in a, in an unfortunate way because the, the, the what we are building at Peloton is very special. Again, from a team perspective and a business model perspective and the changing lives of people who have Peloton memberships, it is very special, very unique, very um, different than these, other, than these other businesses on all kinds of different levels. But um, I wouldn't say I'm that frustrated. It, it's a little bit of a head-scratcher, of course, as we blow, blow through our earnings and, and – um, did a fantastic job on the top and bottom line. To your point, we did. Uh, we had both uh, hyper growth, triple digit growth, and we moved closer to profitability. So for us, it's not an either or. It's it's a both, and and we're very proud of that. All right. So look at around the corner for us, John. You know, obviously the the growth that you're seeing on the various platforms, the various modalities. Uh, where are you seeing it geographically? Is it more bike heavy? Is it more tread heavy? Uh, and where are you looking uh, over the next quarter or two in terms of accelerating that? Yeah, we're, we're, we're investing in all of those things, to your point, Jason. We, we, uh, our, our Canadian business is doing ahead of schedule, uh, our UK business ahead of schedule. Um, our German business on schedule for the launch. Right. We're, we're already selling bikes there. Uh, our tread business is, is ahead of our expectations. Um, we're investing heavily in digital, uh, which is, you know, you, ha you can download our app on your Android device or your iOS right. device. Increasingly 10-foot devices that we're excited to invest in where you can just put your, our content on, on any one of your screens. 
and all of those things are future growth drivers and investments we're making. Right. Again, I will, um, back to your point, Carol, your question about profitability, our U.S. bike mm -hmm. business is profitable. It has been for, for a while now. And so we're taking those profits and the proceeds of our, of our IPO uh, two months ago or six weeks ago, and we're investing in all these things that we think all of them are exciting and, uh, and will certainly bear fruit uh, from, from a growth perspective in the coming years. Right. All right, John Foley, we're going to leave it there. The CEO of Peloton, always good to catch Thank up you. with you. We really appreciate you spending some time with us. Promise to uh, be all together the next time uh, we all do this. John Foley, the CEO of Peloton. So we talked a bit about the fixed income market just a few minutes ago. Let's dig deeper into the economy now, maybe what the Fed is doing about it and how stock markets so far are reacting, which feels pretty positive at the moment. Uh, Omar Aguilar is here with us, Senior Vice President, Chief Investment Officer, Equities and Multi-Asset Strategies for Charles Schwab Investment Management. Easy for me to say. Great to have you here with us, Omar. Thanks for having me. All right. So as you sort of go around uh, this lovely conference with all these people, how are these folks feeling on behalf of their customers about the economy? Let's start there. Well, I got to say that, uh, you know, over the last two months, sentiment has actually shifted quite dramatically. You know, before, you know, at the end of the summer, things didn't look very good. And people were, even though the market was very positive still, you know, the concerns were very there. And the, and the wall of worry was building up. You know, people didn't know what the Fed was going to do. The trade war uncertainties were escalating. The, the tariffs were just imposed with new in, in December for the U.S. and China. People didn't know what to expect about earnings. There was a significant amount of uncertainty that people were concerned about going in through the end of the summer. When you think about the today, and to answer your question about the sentiment, it's actually quite the opposite. There's yeah. a lot of optimism. You know, on one hand, the Fed is on hold, so there's no more concerns about raising rates. There seems to be some positive developments about the U.S.-China relationship and potential constructive pieces about what that may do. Earnings have been very positive, and I think the projections for 2020 seem to suggest that the worst of the deceleration of earnings is over. So a lot of those components on the, uh, on the fundamentals of the market seems to be driving you know, a sentiment higher. Uh, I would probably say that the only thing that has been constant is that they we're still in a global economic deceleration. Right. So explain that. So here we are. We have U.S. equities churning higher and higher. Is it just that U.S. equities in comparison to the rest of the world look good? Uh, in terms of opportunities? I mean, I wonder about valuations here in the U.S. market. Does it make sense that U.S. major equity averages are, are hitting records? I would actually say that there's two things in what you just asked, which is number one is the U.S. economy looks much better than the rest of the world. That doesn't necessarily mean that the U.S. equity market looks more attractive than the rest of the world. In fact, I would actually say that when you think about the relative valuation, as you, you think about it, right. it is clearly you know, favoring other markets. Uh, when in you terms actually, of valuation. In terms right, of valuation. Yeah. Now, when you actually think about long-term growth, 
because of our demographics and because of what you can actually see where the consumption will be and the potential for future growth, that also flavors international markets. You know, our middle class is actually much, much smaller than what it is, say, in China and other emerging markets. And when you actually think of the potential for growing, that actually seems to be higher outside of the United States than in the U.S. So where would you commit new money if you were an investor at this point? Well, I think, you know, we you have to take back to the question about the U.S. economic cycle and where things are in the cycle. The U.S. economy is pretty stable and growing at the trend level, and it's actually still leading you know, the rest of the market. So what that does is that it does provide a significant support for other markets to potentially come back. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the key component there is going to be still, you know, what is going to happen to the dollar? You know, the big question is, is the dollar too strong right. for people to start rotating away from the U.S.? And I think the question is, I think in the next, you know, six months, I think the opportunities will be to just continue to rotate into other markets outside of the United States. Because I think the opportunities are there. You know, and I think the bigger question mark is whether the manufacturing recession that we have seen is going to turn these economies into a big chaos. We seem to be getting better. I mean, I wouldn't say we're out of the woodworks, but I think things are starting to look a little more, you know, uh, positive. Uh, And China, in particular, they're doing everything they can to support that economy. Right. And when you sort of go a level down into corporate earnings, because we're mostly through this latest earnings season, were there things that jumped out at you thematically that you heard? either from individual sectors, from individual companies, uh, even that sort of bolster your case or give you uh, just a little bit of worry as we go into 2020? Well, I think the, the key component is, um, you know, we, we saw a significant deceleration of capital expenditures, yeah. you know, going in through this year. And again, it goes back to what I said, the sentiment, even at the corporate level, was actually pretty negative because, you know, people didn't know what interest rates were going to go and people didn't know what was going to happen with the tariffs. And those two things could affect any company's, you know, future earnings. So now today, what we are heard from a lot of the companies is that their outlook is actually much, much positive. They actually are not as concerned about the future of rates. They're also not as concerned as where the economy is, and they seem to be more constructive, thinking that with the lack of inflation and lack of tariffs, this could actually potentially bolster their earnings. So I teased earlier that, because among some of the notes that you guys sent over in terms of your thinking, expect higher volatility and a natural rotation from defensive stocks into relatively attractive cyclicals. So tell us a little bit about that, You know, because I feel like volatility, we talk about it every day, yet it's very low. What kind of higher volatility? Crazy low. I yeah, mean, like, it's love. unbelievable. Historically, I mean, and even when there's, you know, a sell-off, it may spike, but it still stays at relatively low levels. Yeah, and I, and I think to, 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 there is two sides of the volatility that I think people need to just figure it out. One is what, what is the overall market volatility? In other words, the movement that you have in the overall equity index or whatever is the market that you define. And that seems to be very, very low. But when you actually see the dispersion among sector performance and the dispersion among individual stocks, that has has actually gone much, much higher all throughout 2019. Mm. If you look at the difference between, say, the technology and energy, that spread is huge. Mm. Now, when you compare how that was five years ago, it was actually very tight, which means that the difference 
in valuation across sectors is starting to just become bigger and bigger. And the same thing goes with, with individual securities. Any company that surprises and has positive earnings beyond their expectations goes up, you know, maybe not as much as the ones that get down when they disappoint. But that dispersion, it was not there, you know, it just even at the beginning of this year. So that's when we mean volatility, that also means volatility of underlying components, not just the pure market. So what's your single biggest worry right now as we get into the, the end of 2019 and into into what is likely going to be, pun intended, a volatile year, <laughs> at least politically and, and maybe right. economically. And I would actually say that the only thing that uh, that continues to be the case and we cannot defy gravity is that the, we are still in a slowdown economic-wise. Yeah. You know, we should expect overall the U.S. economy as well as the rest of the world to continue in that deceleration phase. Now, you know, the, the, the central banks have done enough to be able to support that, but in our view, that may not be enough to avoid a recession in the next you know, couple of years. And you know, fiscal stimulus in an election year, it is sort of the biggest question mark going into next year. Right. You know, is there something that you can do to support if the economy starts to get yeah. a little shaky or if the financial market starts to get more volatile than normal? All right. We're going to leave it there. Omar Aguilar is Senior Vice President and Chief Investment Officer, Equities and Multi-Asset Strategies at Charles Schwab Investment Management on site here with us in lovely San Diego. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, along with Jason Kelly live from the Charles Schwab Impact Conference. It's the industry's largest gathering of independent financial advisors. I'm independent. You love this stuff. This is independent. Fuck. This event is all about registered independent uh, financial advisors. And speaking of that, Schwab Advisor Service is releasing its latest independent advisor outlook study, something that will give you insight into what's on the minds of advisors and their clients. And it has a lot of things like recession, market volatility. We'll get into that. Let's talk to Bernie Clark. He's Executive Vice President, Head of Schwab Advisor Services of the Schwab Advisor Services Group, member of Charles Schwab's Executive Committee. And uh, he joins us on site at the Schwab Impact Conference. And I'm going to have to do my darndest to prevent he and Jason from talking about basketball, because he could go there. He's a St. John's guy. <laughs> well, I would have called Big East in the past. Right? I know. I know. So, so nice sad. to be with you. Um, Thanks tell for us, having though, me. You yeah. were just up on stage talking with Chuck, yes. Chuck Schwab. Tell us a little bit about that. And, you know, we were saying how much he's a real guy. He's a genuine guy. He's seen a lot, and certainly in this industry, and as it's evolved. Tell me a little bit about that conversation. You know, it was, it was such a pleasure and, and an honor, and I, I do see Chuck around the building and we have meetings and those kinds of things, but getting in front of our advisors and having him again kind of recount his story of independence and trying to make sure that the focus is always on the client. I, I often say sometimes when I have most my most complex issues and you talk to Chuck about it, he'll say something as simple as, what does the client want? And you'll walk away with your tail between your legs and you'll go do what the client wants, <laughs> right, right? right? The focus, folks, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. And so tell us what you found in this survey because, you know, we've been talking with some of your colleagues. We obviously talked to CEOs, economists, you know, occasionally, you know, well, Carol doesn't talk to regular people because, no, I'm just kidding. I talk to everyone. <laughs> but, you know, what, what? how are people feeling right now? It's hard to get a read necessarily on, on the mood of the consumer, especially which feels ebullient versus a company, which feels a little more cautious. Uh, what are your advisors saying to you when you serve? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know, the study itself is so useful because we've done it now for 13 years. Right. And we can track and we can look back on, on when certain markets were doing certain things. But advisors right now, 
they're a little less optimistic. Now, remember, we, we fielded the study in September, yeah. uh, and that wasn't quite yet at the point of escalation, and we've seen a lot of ups and downs. After a very messy year. August. Messy August, uh, and now we've, we've seen a resilience in, in the market yet again. And, and so I think what you're seeing is advisors planning for the long game, which they always do. They're seeing their clients are a little more anxious than they are, which we see in the retail space as well, right. and individuals without help, and, and they're going to manage it as such. We're also seeing a slight generational divide. Where, mm. where some of the Gen Xs and the Millennials are feeling a little more anxious than the boomers. Bernie, what are the discussions about public versus private markets? Because I feel like that has become uh, certainly a topic at the top of our lists when it comes to anything and everything. Uh, and I'm just curious where you guys see it and what does it mean for advisors and their clients? Well, you know, advisors are, are really wise in that they are dedicated to their clients. And, and there's so many implications between public and private, but transparency is really the, the critical feature of all of it, right? right? And making sure us as a transparent custodian for them, uh, fully regulated with virtually all regulators is a good thing to secure those assets. And advisors being able to take care of the needs of their clients without the entanglements that sometimes come along with, with company participation. And so I want to go back to something you said, but this generational divide, because we talk a lot about that as well, mm -hmm. about expectations as employees. But I would imagine this is a lot about expectations as investors yeah. and as advisors. So how are they viewing the world differently and, and what's influencing that? They're, they're certainly a lot more cautious. And, and there's even a divide within the next generations, right? Because you have some who came through periods of prosperity and sort of yeah. spare, others who started in and spare the and are And the younger are more cautious? Is That's, that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because they grew up in it. They grew up or in saw, it. Or saw, saw what had happened to their parents. They saw their parents and their families and what they went through. And again, depending on the orientation of whether you started well-to-do and, and kind of eroded some of that or whether you went the other way, right? Yeah, I just talked to it with, you know, the younger generation in my family, whether it's nieces and nephews, yeah. and there is a real distrust of established companies that have been around for a long time. They're much more interested in the upstarts and, you know, it's certainly impacting the traditional industries. I want to ask you something because we only have about a minute or so left. Tell me about Schwab's plans for building up capacity, maybe more like a bank and what you guys are doing. Yeah, I, I always find it interesting when people say Schwab becoming a bank. Banking is part of your financial services, right? And it's incredibly important to but see But it's not them. what you set out to do initially, right? No, no, but, but integrating them now, right? Let, let's remember when, when Chuck started his dream, people really weren't in the markets. Right. Institutional right. investors right. were in the markets, the ultra high net worth. This now has been democratized. And banking and, and broker-dealers really are more akin, and, and the next generations want all those services, the banking services as well as the broker-dealer services. So this is going to be a bigger, important part of what Absolutely. Schwab's doing going forward? Absolutely. We're going to continue to grow it, and it, and it is about capabilities and services for clients. It's not simply about where the revenue is being generated. So what kinds of services? Like, are we talking mortgages? Or like Absolutely. Everything? I mean, think, think about the other side of the balance sheet, the lending side of the balance sheet. Incredibly important for advisors, integrating their broker-dealer accounts, if you will, into banking accounts as well. Checking, savings, right. the kinds of things of that, that everybody really needs. And just briefly, adding people, maybe making some acquisitions in this space? What does that look like? Always interested in yeah. understanding how we can grow these things. Build, buy, borrow, 
<laughs> you know, it's you know, it's going to get bigger as well. It's going to get bigger. All right, Great we're going to gonna leave it there. All right, it's nice Good talking to have with you guys. With us. Thank Bernie you, Clark, EVP and head of Schwab Advisor Services for Schwab. He's here on site with us at the Schwab Impact Conference. Just got off stage with the boss. I know he did indeed. I love that conversation. Hey, coming up next, we're going to get to one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg Terminal. You're going to be surprised by what you hear because it is fascinating. It has to do with America's largest insurer. I'm not going to tell you what they've been up to, but like I said, it will be surprising. She said, you don't understand what I said. I said, no, no, no. She watches so much. She watches the market. She watches the global economic environment. Lizanne Saunders, we've talked to her so much over the years. She's chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab on site at the Schwab Impact Conference. Um, so great to see you again. Well, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Really nice. I'm always curious when you come to an event. This is your event. Yeah, mine uh, personally. Your, yeah. <laughs> your peeps. I kind of think it should be yours, Liz. I think, I, I think Chuck's got the. Uh... <laughs> but what are you looking for? I mean, you're talking to a lot of these investment advisors, these are. RIAs. What is it that you're looking to find out? Uh, the, the, the informal Q&A sessions are, are really telling. I, I spent a lot of time focused on investor sentiment, uh, behavioral measures of sentiment, attitudinal measures of sentiment. And it's a great opportunity to hear what's on the mind of advisors as well as what's on the mind of their clients. And it really does color not just how I think about the market, whether you are seeing extremes of optimism or pessimism or maybe a lot of skepticism, right? Uh, but it uh, also gives me input as to what I should be writing about, what I should be focusing on. Yeah. There are times where I'll have a conversation, I'll think, you know what, I haven't written about that topic in two years. But if it's on the minds of our investors or our advisors, then it's probably something I want to focus on. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you about, because I think you wrote about it relatively recently, that we actually have gone the entire show, I think without actually saying this word, is Brexit. Um, and hallelujah. Listen, we have said that word. <laughs> Although many, there were headlines again this morning. many times. Uh, but how does that play into the market right now? There certainly has been some fatigue around it, and yet it does continue to have pretty broad economic consequences, however it goes. However it goes. I mean, it's it's the ultimate can that keeps getting kicked down the road in terms of the the deadline. I think that from a business perspective, that. A lot of businesses, Schwab included, um, that that had to make adjustments under the assumption it would happen, have already made those right. adjustments. Right. So, I, I don't want to suggest that you know when it happens, whatever it looks like, it's going to be a non-event. But but we've certainly been um, wallowing in this uncertainty for quite some time. And I think from a from a corporate structure perspective. I'm not sure it's going to be that epic a deal. And it looks like the, uh, you know, a hard Brexit is much less likely than it was. It, it is interesting. I mean, just to follow on to that point, it is interesting how, how often we are hearing that now. This notion that, you know, people have been like, yeah, well, I moved my bankers out or, you know, I moved my supply chain or well, some whatever it was. Well, to make decisions, right? Yeah. Right. And I feel like we're seeing that in the corporate community as well, whether it's buying a company, whether it's selling off some assets. Like, people are, I don't know whether they're becoming just so immune to the to the headlines, whether it's U.S.-China trade, whether it's Brexit, right? Although trade, trade um, that has been a much bigger factor in terms of what it's what I talked about on stage yesterday, the bifurcation in the U.S. economy right. and, and how weak manufacturing is, how weak business investment is, in contrast to obviously much stronger services, much stronger consumption side of the economy. And I think trade has, we're, we're actually seeing the the 
the direct impact now. You know, when the trade war first began 20 months ago, whenever it was, it was sort of more esoteric and yeah. no one, no companies weren't really putting meat on the bones of what it meant. You right. started to see it in some of the confidence measures, but then it went into CapEx intentions. Now it's actually in CapEx and probably two quarters of decline. So um, that, that that's real. And the and the adjustment of supply chains is, is real and happening. Is it real enough to turn us into a re recession? Um, I, not yet. Um, the, the rub, though, is that if we start to see the weakness in manufacturing morph into through the employment channel, that's when you probably uh, see the overall economy move into recession. It is the case that business investment, if you look at that as a component of the economy, which is about 15 percent, or if you look at manufacturing, which is only about 12 percent, both of them tend to punch above their weight, though, hmm. in terms of impact on the economy. Right. In fact, it, not just recession. If you look at every negative quarter for GDP since World War II, we've had it's 40 or 41 negative quarters. Half of them, business investment contracted, but consumption stayed positive, but you still had a negative quarter even though consumption is almost 70% of the economy. This is a really important point because we talk about the importance of the consumer continuing to spending to keep things going. But but the longer a cycle goes on, business spending, right, and capital expenditures become much more important. And, it, it, you know, the tie-in to profitability, too. So right. that that's where things start to break down. For now, as I said on stage yesterday, the dividing line between the beleaguered parts of the economy, manufacturing, business investment, and the rest of the economy is pretty firm. Um, the cracks that we would start to see would likely be seen through the employment mm -hmm. channels. As of Friday's jobs report, mm -hmm. you know, so far so good. Right. But that's what I'm keeping an eye on to see whether we're, we're seeing this weakness start to morph into the economy more broadly. All right. Before we let you go, got to ask you, you mentioned some of the isms at the top of the, the conversation. Which ism feels like it's dominating, if there is one, uh, the mood here? Because there are a lot of folks here. As you take the temperature, where's it landing? Um, there, there is a lot of concern about what is going on in manufacturing and the likelihood that we don't get a meaningful lift. We probably get no more than stabilization, even if we get a phase one deal on trade. Because if you, if you are making decisions, long-term capital investment decisions, and you've stopped, you've gone into pause mode mm -hmm. as a result of trade uncertainty, I'm not sure a phase one deal yeah. lifts all that uncertainty. So... I, I think trying to see some stabilization on the manufacturing side, uh, I think that has been more uh, top of mind. Um, I think the services stuff is like, all right, good. At least that's not faltering <laughs> yeah. yet. All yet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot to come for sure. Uh, great to have you with us, Lizanne Saunders, Thanks. Chief Investment Strategist over at Charles Schwab here at her party, the Schwab Impact Conference here in San Diego. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master along with Jason Kelly live from the Charles Schwab Impact Conference. It's the industry's largest gathering of independent financial advisors. Well, folks tied to Schwab Charitable have given more than a little bit. Uh, it's such an interesting window into giving a look, a holistic look that maybe we don't always get. Kim Lawton is here with us. She's the president of Schwab Charitable, on site with us here at the Schwab Impact Conference. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me, Carol and Jason. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. <laughs> right, it's you're really home. amazing, the, the size and scope, as we say, of this event. So 20th anniversary this year of Schwab Charitable. And one of the things that I'm interested to understand from you, because this is not your first job at, at Schwab, you really understand sort of how the whole place works, it, its core DNA. What is 
schwabby, for lack of a better term, uh, about this approach? Um, well, that's true. It's not my first job. I've actually been at Schwab almost 25 years. About half of it was on the Schwab side, and the other half, the last 12 years or so, has been on the Schwab charitable side. Um, and what's wonderful about this offer is that, um, you know, Chuck founded it. 20 years ago. We're celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. Um, he wants to take the same approach to charitable giving as he did with saving and investing. So allowing people to give back to to causes that are important to them and to the community in the same way that they have purposefully saved and invested for things for themselves. Kim, I feel like for so long, to some extent, I don't know, in terms of charitable giving, um, it has often been about the tax benefits of it. But I, I'm curious to, you know, what you're hearing in terms of the folks that are doing it, because I do feel like there is um, also a greater need. Yep, that's important. But it's also important to give back. And I feel like in our society where there's so many inequalities, um, and I just feel like people are noticing it and trying to figure out how can I make a difference? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there are two benefits. One is is obviously taxes, and sometimes that's how people get into it, right? They want the tax Initially, benefit. Yeah. And certainly this year with markets setting all-time highs, people are going to be rebalancing, having to, to either they'll be taking gains in their portfolio or wanting to offset some of those gains. So the charitable deduction is still the most controllable deduction people have, especially with the tax reform in recent years. Um, people do turn to charity to try to sort of offset taxes. But Oftentimes, if someone's not philanthropically minded to begin with, they're they're not going to think about it. And so, um, I think from a from a needs perspective, from some of the causes that people care about, having budget cuts, um, people are really turning to charity to try to fill some of those gaps. Um, and also, you know, broader than just their giving, thinking about aligning their investing with their values. Right. So, values-based investing is a buzzword that you hear a lot about. Um, charitable giving fits well with that because it allows you to sort of think through your values. Maybe start by using your charitable account to, to, to give to places that are important to you, but also think about how you might change your investing account. And to the extent that you need to get rid of certain stocks in your investing account, putting those shares into a charitable account is a really easy way to do it without having to take a tax hit. And so across all of those recommendations that, that people are making, are you seeing any trends emerge in terms of where people are disproportionately giving or where people are increasingly giving, maybe? Um, I think generally speaking, the trends, the, you know, it's gradual, but certainly after the election, there were certain causes that people felt were under fire, and we did see a surge in giving to those in 2017, and that's continued. Um, socially responsible investing continues. I think the environment continues to be yeah. a, a, so a source of a tremendous growth. Um, but, but, you know, in general, people still are, you know, religion, healthcare, social services are the top three. And depending on where you are in the country, sometimes they flip order. Um, but, you know, people are definitely putting their money where where their heart is and, mm -hmm. and trying to support those things that they feel strongly about. Yeah. And, and I mean, I do wonder too, that I, I'm just curious if folks are starting to think about the next election cycle uh, and what that means in terms of their investment decisions. Are you seeing any signs of it? Is it still kind of early? I think it's it's a little early to tell. Certainly the markets are, are still doing well, which is wonderful. And that, that may be the, the biggest thing people are worried about is what what that next cycle and what, what the news coming over the next year might mean for the markets. Um, but from a giving perspective, I think people, you know, have, have made decisions on what they want to support or probably using products like our, services like ours where they have a ready 
um, source of charitable wealth that's been built up and that they can give out. And they, they're going to support those kind of causes, even if the economy uh, turns. Anything you're seeing generationally, maybe in terms of either the amount of giving or the destination uh, for the giving from younger versus maybe more established clients? Well, the millennials, what we find is that they are more active than their parents were at the same age, right? They might be you know, giving less than their parents. They don't have the means necessarily, but, but giving has been a part of their life since, right. since young ages, many, many schools now incorporate service into into their curriculum so we see very very That's very active giving from millennials and then what we also see is some of their causes um, they're beginning to impact their parents and their grandparents so they you know we have stories about families who who use their charitable accounts as sort of a family giving platform come together at Thanksgiving talk about different causes some of the the, the grandchildren then uh, you know will donate will contribute their their share to that cause, and then the next thing you know, their parents and grandparents. Interesting. Are doing the same. So influencing yeah. upward, upward as absolutely. well as downward. That's so interesting. All right, Kim Lawton, Lawton, excuse me, president of Schwab Charitable Onsite with us here at the Schwab Impact Conference. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home, honey? Please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody. Time for the drive to the close. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, Jason Kelly, live from the Charles Schwab Impact Conference, the industry's largest gathering of independent financial advisors. With us, back with us, is Neil Hennessy, Chief Investment Officer, Portfolio Manager of the Hennessy Funds, $6 billion in assets under management, uh, based in Novato, California. So where is that compared to where we are? Right in between San Francisco and where the fires are up north. You are. Okay. Well, it's nice to have you here with us. Um, certainly a lot going on in our country and a lot going on in the world. Um, I love talking to folks like you because, uh, as I said to Jason, I love folks who have seen a lot of different cycles, have seen, uh, have dealt with a lot of macro market issues. Um, I don't know. How do you see this world right now? Well, there's there's a lot to say something about the world. There's also something about the market. So do you want the market or the world? Because they're different? Well, one and the same, but different. From the standpoint, I hear over time, and I've heard it for the last couple of years, that the market's at its peak. It's going to come down. We've had the bull runs over. And, I and we're hitting and, records. <laughs> and I try and tell people, why don't you just close your eyes and, and, and think about corporate profits at all-time highs, cash flow at all-time highs, Unemployment at three and a half percent, mortgage rates under four percent, five hundred companies in the S and P five hundred sitting on over five trillion dollars in cash. So why is everybody so cash? okay? So why is everybody so negative? It's just because it's their nature. It's their nature to say, "Well, we've been doing this for ten years. For it so has long. to come down with yeah. so long." But they don't give you any reason to. So when I look at the market, we're marching to thirty thousand, and then we take a pause and look at where we're going to go. But people are really looking at. What's happened in the past 10 years? In the past 10 years, we've had 22 corrections. 22. There were 16 between 5 and 10%, but from peak to trough was 17 days. Right. It's well, nothing. 
Well, and I love talking about, Jason knows this, like market cycle. Like I feel like something's happened in our market environment where we get those corrections pretty quickly and the market kind of smacks down when things get either overbought or whether there's issues in the market and then we kind of resume up. But I feel like the market cycles have gotten more condensed. Is that fair? Well, I think what's happening is we're recycling the headlines. It's either China one day, it's impeachment this day, it's whatever, and they're just recycling everything. But this market reminds me of the 1982 to 2000 market where the market was up each and every year with the exception of 1990 when it was down one half of 1%. The market was up, and that included the crash of 87. Real estate crash in the late 80s, early 90s. A dot-com crash at the end of the 90s. This is a market we're in. So then everybody starts to look at China and say, well, this is what's holding up the market. This, in my opinion, is no different than President Reagan dealing with Gorbachev. Right. Huh. He just outspent him, and the Russian economy went south. Well, that's what President Trump's trying to do with China. If you look at China, it's very fragile now. Their banking system's very fragile. And if you put these tariffs on it, you notice we haven't seen anything in the uh, consumer price index go up because of 25% tariffs because we're not paying them. Yeah. The Chinese want the revenues. They don't care about the profits. So once you break their economy, and we saw that with uh, uh, Iran in the 70s, we saw with the Japanese in the 80s, we're seeing it now with the Chinese and, and same thing same, in your view. Same thing. So you think the Chinese economy could be broken by yeah. this? Wow. Yeah. And what does that look well, like? Think about it. They've had right now in the last month or so, the Chinese government has had to uh, step in and prop up some of these small banks and some of these rural communities. And I was just looking at one the other day and I had my son AJ. I said, "Hey, check these numbers. Let me know if this is right." But it's a small little community, and they got eight billion dollars in loans. Okay, so $8 billion, that's bigger than a community bank anywhere in America. We love talking to you. I love what Jason said. So what does a China coming unraveled or undone look like? Well, essentially what happens is then we'll get what we need to get, which is the Chinese can come over here and do business, but we don't have to give, we don't, they don't have to join an American company. We want to do business there. We have to join up with a Chinese company. And when you do that, you have to give them all your intellectual technology. We don't, so it's not a level playing field. And you're also talking, it's government-sponsored companies that are coming and they're throwing a lot of money at it. But if you look at it, you put these tariffs on, they're going south, they'll give up, and we'll get what we want. Well, let me just throw one other element into this, which is you have a lot of big multinational companies based here in the U.S. who are reluctant maybe to go as hard as as you are describing. I think about what happened with the NBA. I think about what's happened with a lot of big, not just tech companies, but consumer companies Mm -hmm. who look at China maybe in a slightly different way because it is a massive market and they may be unwilling to go so far. Could that essentially prop up the Chinese economy for a while? Well, look at big corporations and and relate it back to what we're doing here at Schwab in the real world. Big corporations like regulations. It puts a small person out of business. So the more regulations, things happen. So in in our business here and what we're doing at, at Schwab is the small person's getting squeezed. At the same time, the big companies, it doesn't really matter them because most of all people employed in the United States are mid the small companies. So, and they're not doing business in China. So that's the difference. You can say to farmers, you can do a, a handful, but the reality of the situation, the multinationals, they'll be fine. 
They're They'll probably figure out a different market. So exactly. when does this China reckoning happen? Uh, next Tuesday, three o'clock. No, <laughs> no, but no. I, no. I'm serious. Like we have been, you know, kind of so overcome with the China-U.S. trade hi- headlines that it kind of is like, oh yeah, there's another one. Oh yeah, there's another one because that's just they've been going on forever. So when does kind of that's a big change in terms of Chinese policy? If we really that we don't a U.S. company doesn't have to partner up with a Chinese company to do business over there. When do we get that change? Well, the notion is is they're going to try and hold out as long as they can to get through the next presidential election and hopefully President Trump isn't there to keep going on these tariffs. I don't think it's going to go that far. I think their economy is a lot more fragile than people suspect it to be. Their numbers have never really been correct. We right. see the numbers of, of the Talk companies that actually... Or yeah. lack thereof. So, you know, I, I, I'm looking at what's happening in the little banking sector and the government coming in. So I think it's a lot more uh, it's sooner rather than later. And I don't think it will get to the presidential election before they break. Be remiss if 30 seconds left. What's your... Best investment idea right now, besides Hennessy funds. <laughs> Just <laughs> oh, quickly. you know, my line. there's the mid cap sector. I love the mid cap sector. There's a lot of value in the mid cap sector because mid cap companies are big enough to survive an economic tsunami. They're also big enough to buy small caps that are accretive to them. They're also big enough to be have a big corporation buy them and be accretive. So if you're going to buy in here, buy value in the mid cap arena. Such fun. Thank you so much. We love, love having you on. Neil Hennessy, Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager at Hennessy Fund, $6 billion in assets under management based in Nevada, California, on site with us at the uh, Charles Schwab Impact Conference. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.